0: Hey everyone, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you're joining me from. My name is Barton Seaver. I'm a husband, father, chef, author, joining you from the ragged, jagged, delicious coast of Maine, where my family and I live on a wonderful little plot of Eden that we call our Seaver family farm, which is raging with uh, abundance right now. So I actually have a bunch of questions for you today, which I'll get to in a minute. But thank you very much for joining. I really do appreciate it. For this open office hours you can ask away and anything it doesn't have to be even be food related but uh anything to the to the industry whatever it is you want to know about farming unicorns or dinosaurs whatever it is hey we welcome the questions and i really appreciate you being a part of the ruby family yeah i don't have uh, much more than an hour with you today because some very exciting news and well i'll back up a second Those of you who have joined me before know that I like to start off uh, each of these events with a little moment of gratitude, because cooking for people is an act of kindness, it is an act of love, and we should be so grateful for the opportunity to express ourselves through food. And uh, well, the best ingredient in any dish you can prepare is gratitude for it. So um, whenever you take or participate in cooking or a meal, I, I suggest you just take a moment to sit back and, and think about something you're grateful for and something I am grateful for, uh, well, peaches, too much zucchini, pears, uh, way too many tomatoes, etc. But something I'm very grateful for is that my six year old little guy, Alden went to kindergarten yesterday for his very first day. And he was so brave. He was so good. He was so kind and strong and he was so tired when he got home and he's taking this very seriously. So we had, uh, yeah. I'm just grateful for that opportunities to be a part of his life. It's just so awesome. So thanks for being a part of my life as well. And thanks for inviting me to be in part of your life. So let's dive into some questions from Mitch. Hi friend. Thank you for your energetic and informative sessions. Questions. Can you give me some advice on practical or batch on batch cooking? I understand the concept, but I'm struggling with ways to make it happen. Any tips or guidance? Interesting. Um, you know, off the top, I would say that there's a really great book on batch cooking by Victor Helese, G-I-E-L-L-E-S-S-E, Victor Gilese. Uh He is one of the deans, a vice president, I believe, at the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, he was one of my deans when I was teaching there. Uh, a great man, a certified master chef in the ACF program, uh, and just a hell of a cook. Um, he has a really great book on, on batch cooking for the professional chef uh, that has a lot of great lessons for for anybody interested in food. So I would first suggest that. But you asked me, and what um, you know, what tips and advice that I have? I well, first of all, it t- depends on on how big of a batch, uh, and also how complex the cooking is. So for example, I recently cooked a dinner for about three hundred people uh, that had ratatouille. On the menu. Now, ratatouille is actually a fairly complex culinary creation uh, in terms of just the mechanisms of bringing it all together. Sure, you can just take all your vegetables and throw them in a pot and saute them, which is basically going to steam them more than anything else uh, if you're using too much. Uh, yeah, you're not really ever going to develop flavors and basically at the end of it, you have, okay, saute slash steamed vegetable melange. Great. That's not, that's not ratatouille to me. Ratatouille to me, in batch cooking, I'll say, okay, what am I trying to get here? Well, I'm trying to get a little bit of color on the onions to, to really develop that sweetness. I'm trying to get uh, the zucchini and the yellow squash to release their juices, but not to make them soggy sodden, you know, mush, right? I still want them to be a little al dente. The eggplant, what am I trying to do with the eggplant? Well, I want it to really suck up that olive oil, and really to suck up all of the juices from the other ingredients so that it becomes sort of the binder or the mesh between them all. Uh, the tomato, the spices, whatever else I'm putting in there, what is that supposed to be? Well, I don't want the tomato to be raw. Okay. So those are sort of the considerations, right? And that's one of the things that I think in batch cooking is so important for your finished dish. What are the considerations that you, you want to take into account? Right? If you're just looking at like say basmati rice pilaf or something like that, yeah, there's not a whole lot of considerations, right? Is it cooked properly? Is it cooked evenly? And is it seasoned evenly? Okay. But with something like ratatouille, uh, that's more complex or say even beef stew, etc. cetera, anything like this, um, you then have to apply your individual strategies to individual ingredients. And this is where batch cooking, I think, becomes a little more progressive and interesting is that you're cooking your onions separate and solo, Uh, maybe even in small batches, as we did for this party of 300. You know, how much onions did I have? I had this much onions. That's not all going to fit in one saute pan. So I did two batches of that, right, in order to get them exactly where I wanted them to be. Uh, And so I did that with each progressive ingredient and then with the pan left over, a big old Rondo pan. I took more olive oil, I added in some smoked paprika, I added in a little bit of coriander, I added in some slivered almonds, and I got all of this toasted till the spices were aromatic and ebullient and beautiful. Then I threw in the tomatoes. The tomatoes then simmered down so they no longer had that raw flavor to them, but that they were still kind of juicy. And then everything else went into the pan. Everything else got mixed. And everything met together at just the right time so that within 10 minutes of simmering bam there it was everything brought to perfection in the same way as though i was cooking a one pot you know a one small one pot dish for five or eight people etc so with batch cooking i think that's that's really the the takeaway lesson is really consider each ingredient and where that ingredient needs to get to either in a sort of a Three or four steps on before you mix it with the others or, you know, however, whatever you need to do to get that ingredient where it needs to be to the point where you mix them in together. And I'll apologize a little bit for some of the plane noise, but there's somebody who's trying to learn how to land a pontoon plane uh, on the, just by the dock down there. And uh, I I don't think they've quite gotten their nerves up to do it. Um, And I wish them all the best. But uh, in the meantime, they're just kind of circling the house. So apologies, not much I can do about that other than just wish them well, All right? All right, Mitch, thanks so much for your questions. I appreciate that. And Mitch, I believe you might have sent me an email about uh, doing a Chili's um, event coming up sometime soon. You know, maybe a different Mitch, but I'll give you credit for it. Great idea, and, you know, we're gonna take that in consideration and we will do a Chili's event coming up because I love me some Chili's. And uh, yeah, cool. Thanks, Mitch. Appreciate you. All right. From Lynn B. How do you freeze sourdough dough and sourdough starter? What do you do to prepare previously frozen sourdough in the oven for pre or previously frozen sourdough starter? Thanks. So I am not a baker, Lynn. Uh, thank you very much for your question. Um, I am not a baker. I don't have expertise in this uh, in the way that I do with with other forms of cooking. So I'll, I'll give you just some sort of light topics off the top of my head and then also give your question over to some of the bakers in on the Ruby team here. Uh, But I would freeze anything you freeze, freeze in the quantities that you are then going to need to use them. Right. So if you're freezing tomato sauce, for example, don't freeze a gallon of it. If what, in fact, you need is a pint every time you go to use it for making dinner for your family. Right. You don't want to throw out the whole gallon just to get what you need. Same thing with sourdough starter, whether they're just little balls of, of the starter that you, that you do um, in just the quantities that you need. Uh, I would also say that the free because the freezing of things matters so much in terms of um, how the water and the molecules and proteins and all the little Little things interact. Um, you know, as water freezes, it crystallizes, and the slower that water freezes, the bigger the crystals become. Uh, just the more voluminous they become, really. Uh, and so those crystals can damage cellular structures more. The slower something is frozen, the quicker it's frozen. They, they kind of, well, they they don't expand nearly as much. Um, And so you have less crystallization, you have less damage internally to these molecules. Now, just as it's true to freeze, you want to freeze something as quickly as possible. So if you were freezing a batch of sourdough starters in little individual bags, put them on a sheet tray, lay them out so that they have airflow over them, right? So you can freeze them very quickly. If you just put them all in a bunch and throw it into the back of the freezer, yeah, it'll freeze pretty slowly, right? So freeze as quickly as you can. And then thaw is the opposite. You want to thaw basically as slowly as you can. So pull it out of the freezer and put it right into the refrigerator. And with a little ball of sourdough starter, you're not talking about much time here, right? But that thawing process is as important as is the freezing process. And this is particularly true with things like frozen seafood, frozen meats, frozen anything really. Um, you know, when you get to like frozen sauces, like tomato sauce, I'm not sure it matters so much. Yeah, you can just run that under warm water and get it done, right? Because you're going to boil it anyway. Um, so that's that's really the only advice that I, I feel sort of qualified to give on this. But we will, again, uh, pass along your question to folks far more expert than I. Thanks for joining us, Len. <coughs> For Mitch, thanks for comments on, on batch cooking earlier. My question was not very clear. By batch cooking, I was referring to prepping and cooking ingredients in advance for the upcoming week. OK, for only two people. Sorry to make that clear. Well, I'm glad I gave you such an in-depth, detailed answer for the question you didn't ask. Sorry, Mitch, but thanks for clarifying. Um, so batch cooking, prepping and cooking ingredients uh, you know, in advance. Certainly a big part of that, you know, here comes the street sweeper, too. It's just a carnival of of noises around here today. Sorry. Uh, Prepping in advance requires having, well, a plan, right? You don't want to just start chopping up tomatoes if none of the dishes that you're going to eat further down the line are going to have tomatoes in them. Uh, And so that menu planning is very key. Uh, And menu planning can be done with an eye towards you know, sort of reverse engineer the process, uh, plan the menu towards the batch cooking. So if you're going to make a pot of quinoa, great. You know that you're going to have steamed quinoa that night. The next two nights later, you can make quinoa cakes with romesco sauce, which is ridiculously delicious, by the way. Uh, And then the day later, you can have a quinoa tabouleh salad for lunch, and then maybe a day after that, you have some crispy oven oven roasted quinoa, so it's crispy. You put that on top of a spinach salad with candied red onions, whatever it is. Um, it's really looking for ways to kind of reverse engineer that creative process in a way. So think of an ingredient you want to batch prep, quinoa, and then think about all the different ways you can use quinoa, and sort of make those the goalposts on your menu planning in a way, and then fill it in around that is a really fun way. And that's kind of what we do here. Uh, for instance, I just bought two sides of Arctic char uh, that we're going to eat tonight off the grill. I'm going to cook the rest of it. I, we're a family of four, two of us. you know, One is two years old, one six years old. So we're not going to eat two sides of salmon. But I know that I'm going to make salmon cakes for the boys' lunches tomorrow. Um, and I know that I'm going to do a salmon salad at some point in the week for my wife and I for lunch. So... Uh, yeah. The other thing is, is with batch cooking is prepare for a little bit of tedium. You know, and if you if your goal here is to save time and to be very efficient in your cooking, then just register and acknowledge the fact that, yeah, quinoa is going to show up four times this week. And that's okay. That's really okay. Um, so there you go those are my thoughts and comments, Mitch. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming back with the, with the, with the question. Appreciate you. Hey, Judith T. Nice to see you, friend. I always appreciate you when you join. Uh, was wondering if you do a class on vinegar making, including the basics of maybe some flavor vinegars. Absolutely. We will certainly, uh, take that in consideration. That's a class I'd love to do. <clears throat> so as you know, Judith, I, <clears throat> I make, uh, quite a bit of my own vinegar. Uh, and for the rest of you, this is, really out of convenience for, for me as more sustainability than anything. So my wife doesn't drink wine. I drink wine. And I have decided in my life that four glasses of wine is too much and zero glasses is too little. You're right. So there's often times where after two days or maybe even three days, you know, I'll have a glass of wine one night, a glass and a half the next night, a glass the next night. And then there's just this little sort of tired, I wouldn't call them dregs but just tired wine leftover right even if it can be great wine so i bought a uh, a vinegar mother which you can buy you can source online which is just an acetobacter uh, or you can uh, inoculate uh, with some live culture vinegar something like uh, the brags anything that that says uh, you know with the mother in quotes uh, for some reason, I don't know why. That's just bad graphic design. Anyway, um, you can inoculate it with just a little bit of that, and uh, as you, as I have done, sort of done a solera system, which is how they make sherry in Spain. Which is every year they put in this year's grape juice, and from the bottom of these cascades of barrels, uh, from the bottom of these barrels, they take out some of the the now vinegar or the now wine right that's fermented so that down the line you still have molecules of the original wine or the original juice still in there and there's solera systems that are hundreds of years old how cool is that right so you end up with this very blended very mellow product Uh, that's the product of multiple years and that's what i do is every time i have a little bit left over i just pour the wine in and then i off the bottom of this single barrel that I have, I just pull some wine out. Um, and then some of the things that I will do, and Judith, I'm kind of giving the whole class now—not the whole class—but uh, you know, I've got a, a white wine vinegar. It started. Uh, let's see. I've got all sorts. of All sorts of stuff. I got white wines. I got rosés. I got white wine with an aged Chenin Blanc that I opened that I didn't really particularly care for as a wine. So you know what, instead of drinking wine that I didn't really like, uh, or throwing it out, I turned it into vinegar and it's absolutely delicious. Let's see, I've got homemade cider vinegar. I got rosé wine vinegar. got A lot of vinegars. More vinegars over here. This is a champagne vinegar. And probably the mother, what I'm talking about is if you can see that floating around right here. I don't know if that shows up or not, but uh, all this stuff in the bottom, too. If you can see that, that's the mother. Look at that. It looks kind of like a jellyfish floating around at the bottom. But it's actually the mother, in quotation marks. So there it is. And that is essential for vinegar. So flavored vinegars, etc. So, yeah, Judy. Let's get into that another time, but uh, thanks for that and queuing that up. Appreciate you, good to see you. From Blanca, thank you for offering office hours, of course. May not be able to attend, but I have two questions, so we'll make sure that you get to uh, know where these questions were answered when we archive this uh, onto the YouTube page as well as onto the Ruby page, so you can just go to where the question was answered. Isn't that convenient? What tends to be the hardest obstacle to overcome as we learn to cook? Huh. Interesting question. Ob- hardest obstacle to, to overcome when learning how to cook? Um, I think probably like getting out of our own way. Maybe. Uh, I think oftentimes when we're learning how to cook, we haven't developed the confidences yet to really understand and intuit, intuitively uh, understand heat and seasoning and the machinations of cooking. And what I mean by that is like, by now, I have cooked so much food, I have grilled so many times, for example, that I can start a fire and just in the back of my mind, just know exactly how hot it's gonna be because I'm absorbing information about the wind I'm absorbing information about how big the canister is that I'm grilling in, how much the airflow is into it, the time that I started it, uh, what I'm going to be grilling. And now I can just go out there and I can throw my peaches or steak or pork loin on there and just, I just know, I just have so much confidence in it, um, you know, that I can intuit how that heat is going to work. Uh, That's the same on a stove like I can look at a pan and just kind of know all the details that I put into it, meaning when I put it on, how I turned it on, um, you know, how that pan has behaved in the past, et cetera. Uh, All of that learning just becomes intuitive. And I think when we're cooking, when I say to get out of our own way is is to do exactly that is to not overthink the situation but really just to absorb to to sit there and be a student of our own actions i think oftentimes we might read the recipe and think think that's where we're doing the learning it's like no 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 the the learning is actually in the mechanics of it more so than the recipe because right now i can i can read any recipe and just be like okay got it i know exactly what they're telling me because i I can picture the end result and the process, right? And I'm I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm I'm just an experienced cook. Many of us on these these office hours are. Uh, So this is not some special divine power of mine. This is just, no, I've spent 50,000 hours cooking. Um, So again, sort of the the mechanics of it, uh, Blanca, are also, Having confidence and just being like, you know what? I'm just gonna let that thing sit in the pan. And I'm going to accept and going to accept the results of it and learn from it. I think oftentimes we're just like, oh, I gotta poke it. Like I gotta turn it. I gotta flip it. I gotta dig it into the fire. I gotta like I always gotta be doing something to it. Nope. No, Blanca. You don't. You don't always have to be doing something. You know what cooks food? Heat. You know what doesn't cook food? Humans. Humans manage food and heat in the cooking process. So take yourself out of it sometimes and just be willing to make mistakes, right? I mean, if, if you're just absorbing information and watching things, okay, well, maybe I should have flipped that steak a little bit earlier or maybe I flipped it too early. Maybe I put the steak in the middle of the pan and I use gas burner so that the heat is distributed more towards the outside of the pan. Well, maybe I put the steak right smack in the middle of the pan and it, that wasn't the hot spot. Oh, okay, and I, maybe I should have put it a little over towards the edge, etc. It's little things like that that you learn by acknowledging the information that's in front of you. So have no ego. Go into it with confidence that you are going to learn something, not confidence that it's going to be perfect. Um, so in that way, sort of stay out of your own way and let the information flow to you. It's my best advice. Long-winded answer, but kind of a fun one. Cheers. And you had a second question, which is, when dining out, how can we continue to inspire curiosity in new, healthier dishes? Um, you know, I'd say with that, just explore flavors and tastes and, and different cuisines. Uh, to me, what's so engaging about food is not French food, necessarily. Okay, fine. That's a it's a language of food that many of us speak and sort of use to understand as our baseline. But what the French will do with a sweet potato, for example, is wickedly different than what Indonesian cooking will do with a sweet potato or Polish cooking will do with sweet potato or what Peruvians do with it. Right. And so it's that curiosity to me of identifying maybe what are your favorite foods. Maybe it's a sweet potato, an artichoke, a salmon, whatever it is. And just kind of using that as your guidepost to thread you through different cuisines, through different things, so that you're always working from a grounded standpoint, right? Like you always know that, okay, here's the commonality. The through line here is salmon. And I'm really curious to see what all these different cuisines do with it. That way you really are learning about application of flavors and of techniques and of taste profiles, etc., cetera, um, and not just kind of being overwhelmed with like, wow, okay, that's, the, like, that's awesome. And Indonesian cuisine is really complicated, and I don't really know where to start with what I just ate. Well, start to understand it by starting with the salmon or whatever sort of that core through-line ingredient is. That's, uh, that's my advice to you on that. Cheers. And that doesn't have to be boring. Uh, it just means like, you know, having that baseline commonality by which to, as your reference point to make sense of different experiences. Thank you, Blanca. Appreciate you. Thanks for being part of the Ruby family. Hey Patty, just curious While creating a new dish. Have you ever just thrown it all out and started over? <laughs> um, yeah, rarely, but, um, Mostly just because I, you know, um, <clears throat> sustainability. I'm, I, I'm not a big fan of throwing food away. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, let's say, I, let's, let's replace starting over, throwing it out and starting over with just admitting that it was a complete failure. And like on, on that level, absolutely. Yes. I do that pretty, not like constantly, but I do it pretty often. Um, but I'm also so sort of practiced in food that like, I know that, poaching a kiwi and coriander scented bacon fat and serving it with a cotton candy foam. Just no, 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 I'm not going to do that. You know, it's sort of, uh, I've, I've reached a point where like the failures are becoming less and less because I just have a greater sensibility of earned over time. And again, this is not patting myself on the back. This is just practice. Uh, But I'll tell you, I do go back and look at old notebooks and I I encourage every one of you to keep notebooks on what you do and and your culinary process and just ideas that you have. Um, In fact, I'll run and get one of these notebooks because I want to show it to you. Um, But I'll go back and look at notebooks from my early days. and Oh, my gosh. I was looking the other day at this special that I proposed for a soft shell crab dish that had 37 different ingredients in it. And it was just a disaster. And I'm not talking like a mole. Moles can have 30 ingredients in them of themselves. Indonesian sauce is the same. There's some incredibly complex layered flavors that are, that are really wonderful. So it's not just 37 is too many, but I had like black beans and a tarragon this, and a you know, like seared okra over here and braised zucchini and like cumin and coriander and it was like oh my lord Bart, oh my lord and then like lime juice it was it was so much and it was so bad it was so terrible um so yeah there's that but um yeah you know what i'm gonna run to the next room real quick i'll be right back i want to show you this So i'm just gonna mumble myself there we go hey again welcome back Bart. thanks so i have these just ancient notebooks and in them i've got all sorts of ideas and whenever i read a cookbook or something i always try and write down the name of the cookbook and like what page i find something on um just so i can attribute if need be but uh you know, it's just like ideas I had, like sliced lemon marinade with garlic, EVO and parsley, extra virgin olive oil and parsley. Cool. Caramelized pineapple butter. Okay. Artichoke mashed potatoes. I don't know about that. Pear and saffron chutney. Oh, that sounds pretty great. Sherry vinegar caramel. That's a really good one, actually. That one I ended up using in a whole lot of dishes. Take sugar, caramelize it until it's... Nice dark brown, then add sherry vinegar to it and reduce it down again. It was really delicious. But just having these notebooks is so fun and so key. And what's great about it is that it then also uh, keeps you from making mistakes again uh, in the future, but um, yeah. And you can see, begin to see a pattern and evolution of how dishes come together in your brain and it's a bit like having a journal. Yes. I really wish I had a journal. I really wish I'd spent the time as a kid doing a journal because I'd really like to get to know who I was back then in the ways that are slightly less malleable than memory is. But um, so, yeah, there's that. So not a direct answer to your question. But um, there you go. Also, when I'm reading Free Wine magazine or whatever else I'm reading time, if there's a dish or something that I like, like this one. Like, I thought that was really cool. It's a tuna. uh, Let's see. This is from Italy. Cold smoked tuna carpaccio with pickled California grapes, avocado, and crispy shallots. It's like, damn, that's a great idea, right? I'm going to want to make that someday. This is the way that we begin to formulate our own artistic sensibilities um, and our own sense of expression and, and Sort of how we want to use food, how we want to use ingredients, flavor combinations, etc. So, again, this is a long-winded answer to, um, you know, have I just thrown something out? Yes, but I also have a process in order to prevent that. Thanks, Patty. Great question from Judith L. Hi, friend. I started getting something. Uh, I'm looking at getting something to steam vegetables. What equipment do I recommend for steaming? Uh, very simple. Um, And just a colander and a pan that it'll fit into works just fine on the you probably already own it category. Uh, But in terms of steaming, I use a bamboo steamer, you know, a Joyce Chen brand, I believe bamboo steamers and they come in small, multiple sizes, they come in multiple levels. So you can have dumplings and asparagus or something, whatever. Uh, the bamboo steamers I I like because they work, but they've also worked for, I don't know how many thousands of years people have been doing this, uh, with those and just any equipment that sticks around that long is going to be the best to me. Um, it's sort of build a better mousetrap kind of thing. It's like, yeah, well, the bamboo steamers kind of perfect. There you go. And they're made to fit easily over various size cookware that you already have. Uh, Oh yeah. And they're like $12. So there you go. Cheers. Thanks Judith. From Kathleen, what are some basic principles on garnishing a dish? What a great question. Okay. Um, Flavor wise, does it make sense? Okay. Does it make sense? Uh, do the flavors match? Okay. Uh, is the garnish going to confuse or uh, be somewhat disassociated with the rest of the dish? Um, you know, meaning like, okay, you have New England clam chowder and you're garnishing it with lime zest. Does it look good? Yes, is it aromatic? Yes, is it flavor-wise a good idea? No, it's just not, right? I mean, it's a disassociated garnish. So make sure first and foremost that the garnish actually adds something to the flavor profile, right? Even if it's just on par or parallel to, to me, that's not good enough. It has to have earned its place on that plate. To me, I'd rather a boring looking plate you know, sans garnish, than a plate where the garnish is a distraction. Another thing on garnishes is I am of the mindset that never, ever use non-functional garnishes, meaning a garnish that you can't eat uh, or easily incorporate into a dish. Okay, so I've got this beautiful braised lamb shank. Oh, man, it's so delicious. And I'm serving it over uh, saffron couscous, and it's just sitting proud and upright. And it's got all the vegetables around it and the braising liquid sitting at the bottom. It's just this gorgeous thing. And then I put up a, a tree of rosemary on top. Of it. What the hell am I supposed to do with this rosemary? It doesn't integrate into the dish, its flavors aren't really compatible. So the first thing I as an eater do, what do I do? I have to take my sprig of tree of rosemary off of my dish using my hands. And find a place to put it. What a terrible way to start a meal, right? I just you're sort of asking the guests, you know, if you're in a professional restaurant, you're sort of asking the guests to do something they just shouldn't have to do. Does it look pretty? Yeah, it looks great. It's kind of cool. It's sticking up in the air, but it adds nothing except labor and confusion. And now you're like, what am I supposed to do? Put it on the tablecloth and get your tablecloth all spotted? Like, man it's just not good. So functional garnishes only meaning something that integrates into the dish and can be used throughout the meal as well. The other thing is a garnish should not be, should be not overwhelming. Like you don't want so much parsley that you end up being like, wow, oh, every bite there's uh, some, a lot of parsley in this, a few tiny flecks of parsley in each bite off of that lamb shank with the saffron couscous dipped into the braising jus. Mm, wow. Okay, just a little bit of freshness to bring it to the fore. Cool, right? And you want to scatter it me, scatter it over or evenly distribute a garnish so that it evenly distributes throughout the eating experience. Right? If you just get one bite of your meal with a garnish, you're like, uh, okay, I want more of that. If it's a successful garnish, oh, I want more of it. But there is no more. Um, so... Those are, those are two really important principles, uh, three really important principles. The other is uh, if you are going to garnish with something, put the effort into it. Don't just hack at your parsley if you're going to put parsley on a dish, right, and just scatter it over. Don't just hack at it. Wash your leaves of parsley. Get really good parsley, first and foremost. Buy it fresh at the farmer's market. You know, or go to a store that has a lot of turnover. Get really fresh parsley. Taste the leaf in the store. Is it really woody, you know, as parsley leaves can get when they're overgrown and deep, dark green? Okay, well, guess what? Find something else to use. There you go. But you have nice, young, beautiful, fresh, aromatic, abelian parsley. Wash the leaves to make sure you're not putting sand on your dish. Dry them off very carefully, gently to make sure they're fully dry. Roll those leaves up. So that you have some real intent when you're cutting. Use a nice big knife. Slice all the way through them as finely as you can go. And then when you go to chop against the grain of the parsley, you know what's easier to move than all of these little bits of parsley? Yourself! So stand up and now cut across the grain of the parsley, right? Holding it all so it's this nice compact little pile. So you're cutting each strike, stroke of the knife, you're getting this really nice sliced cut to it. You're getting more and more evenly sized pieces. And then use it within a reasonable amount of time. I understand in restaurants, you got to do a pint container of it. and You're going to be using it all night. I, I get that. But don't use it all week. Use it all night and then be done with it, right? So when you then go to sprinkle that parsley over your dish, each piece looks relatively the same. Meaning you're not adding a visual distraction to your dish by like, Oh, well, here's this big chunk of parsley. And here's a whole bunch of tiny stuff. And well, it wasn't dried well enough. So here's a chunk of bits of parsley. It's just kind of this like parsley ball over here. No one wants any of that. So just put intent into your garnish and make sure that it looks good because that's one of its ultimate purposes. Cool. All right. Thank you, Kathleen. Great question. And by the way, I had nightmares when I was first coming into kitchens that, uh, you know, this old French chef would be like, cut the parsley, cut it. And I would, I would cut it. And then he'd come over and be like, very good. Now put it back together. And I would spend literally all like all night in this stress dream of having to put the parsley leaves back together. Any of you who have a psych degree might uh, overthrow in the comments over there what's your, uh, what your, how you would... Uh, how you would address that. But anyway, thanks for the great question, Kathleen. Appreciate you from Wilma N, what brand of knife do I use? Uh, you know, Wilma, I, um, I use a whole lot of different brands of knives because I, I've been very fortunate to have been given so many knives through the years. Uh, and so I have a, a, a mishmash of a whole lot of different things. Um, let's see, what am I really using? So are Murphy knives, This is a carbon steel knife and they get all patinaed like this. And it's not the best knife for everything because it can discolor acids, especially like cutting an apple. It will discolor them pretty quickly, uh, et cetera. But they keep their blade sharp forever. I really love them. R. Murphy knife company is a great one. They were a family owned company, but they were bought recently by Dexter. Uh, I have a bread knife. This is the Dexter bread knife. I really like this one. I like the handle of it. It's not the most attractive handle, but these are 20 bucks. They are sharp as, and they do the job and I know where it is. Always, always, always have a very sharp serrated knife. Um, it's the one knife to me that I'm willing to just trade out. They're hard to sharpen uh, and a, the nastiest, nastiest cuts come from dull serrated knives. So to me, like I will, I will, get rid of this knife every couple of years and just buy a new one. They're cheap enough that you can do that. Um, I have this beautiful Japanese slicer knife that I use when I'm, you know, all those times that I'm making carpaccio in my house, which actually is pretty often. Um, I have a shimitar, this is sort of a or a meat. Um, I do enough salmon butchering and big fish butchering. I have something like that. Uh, Again, our Murphy I've got a cleaver which I really love to use and sometimes use that as just my chef's knife Uh, let's see what else do I have boning knife from R. Murphy so it's really kind of my go-to and then a fillet knife from R. Murphy and then a whole host of different uh, pairing knives etc good kitchen shears but the um, knives that I've seen recently that people really really liked are the Misen brand m-i-s-e-n uh, I've heard a lot of really good things about those and they're pretty uh, reasonably priced for sets. So I recommend those or R. Murphy and then Dexter for um, sort of utility knives like that. So there you go. Cool. Do-do. please comment on taste versus flavor from Jay. Wow. Jay. Hi, Jay. That's a big one. Um, taste versus flavor. So one might say uh, i think there's two ways to answer this one is more in a social way taste being subjective flavor being objective you know you have good taste jay i mean i really love that tie that you're wearing in your in your in your uh, picture there i mean it, it really pops with that shirt you got really great taste right that's not the same with A dish. Um, So there's sort of that social way of of describing taste versus flavor, flavor being, you know, what's, what's the flavor of the month? Well, strawberry, you know, it's pretty defined and categorized. Uh, But in scientific terms, or sort of more technical terms, taste is one aspect of flavor. Taste is the five tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami, right? That meaty fifth flavor you get from shiitake mushrooms, some soy sauce, the A1, it gets you a yeah, kind of flavor that blooms other flavors. Parmesan is really rich in umami, uh, fish sauce, etc. Um, so those are the five tastes. Now, taste is part of flavor because flavor is the, the sum of taste, odors, or aromas, you know, or olfactory. Uh, and in fact, about, I think, 90% of our understanding of f- flavor actually comes from the smell of things. You know, if you, if you hold your nose and eat food, you're getting vastly different experience from it. Um, so flavor being taste, aroma, as well as the, the more chemical aspects uh, you know the way that uh, just foods interact with our with our mouths and, and how taste buds and sensory perception sort of fires off etc so that's a more technical way of saying that but also just from maybe a more utilitarian way uh, strawberries have a taste dishes have flavor what's the flavor of the dish well know uh, it's, it, you're talking about sort of an integrated thing. The flavor of the dish isn't, um, uh, you know, let's go back to that lamb dish I was just talking about. Uh, so lamb shank braised in a harissa spiced sauce over a saffron couscous. The tastes in that dish are saffron harissa, you know, what's the taste of Harissa? Well, it's cumin and coriander and paprika and roasted peppers and vinegar, et cetera. So you can label off all the tastes. But what's the flavor of the dish? The flavor of the dish is like this wonderful North African melange of spice and heady aromas of braised lamb and all that fat rendered into the sauce and then reduced down with that aroma and sort of steam coming off that gently sexy, seductive scent of... Of saffron coming up, wafting through, sort of adding this nice, elegant punctuation to it. Woo! I'm describing flavor there. All right. I hope that makes sense. I hope that offered you some window. Cool. Sarah H. Is vital wheat gluten considered a whole food product? Uh, I, I would say, I, I don't know for sure, but I would say no. Uh, it seems like a, uh, a derivative or a processed product of, so not the whole food. I mean, whole wheat, whole wheat berries would be the whole food. So wheat gluten would be an extracted part of that. So I don't, I, I can't say for sure, but I would say judging just on the, on the cover of that one, I'd say no. Thanks Sarah. Appreciate your question. Becca. Hi, hi friend. How do you store mushrooms, onions, and potatoes? Wow. Um, So mushrooms, I keep them in the back of the fridge, uh, but I keep a little airflow on them. So I'll open up the package. Uh, You don't want them to get musty. You don't want them to get trapped in their own moisture, of which they are mostly moisture. Uh, That will just encourage that sliminess, et cetera. And and I think a dulling of the flavor. You also don't want them just kind of laid out with air flowing over them all the time because that will dehydrate them and alter their flavor. Potatoes, I store. I store potatoes in paper bags. So I grow a lot of potatoes. I harvested about 100 pounds of potatoes this year. Uh, I keep them just in grocery bags. (coughs) Excuse me, over in another part of my my kitchen area in the pantry, and I use them pretty quickly. Uh, Onions, I just store on the countertops. Um, Quite honestly, it's probably not the best place to store them. Storing them in a dark uh, storage area. That's about 55 degrees. Cellar temperature is best. That's what's best for potatoes as well. Uh, but unless I'm growing them, uh, I, as I'm kind of trying to keep the potatoes as near to that kind of conditions as I can, things like onions. If you're just buying these things, just buy them regularly enough. Don't you know, the money that you're going to save by buying 25 pounds of onions this week uh, and holding on to them because they're, uh, 50 cents off, or something like ultimately, you're going to end up throwing away more onions than the money you saved on them. So, I just kind of rotate stock. And you know what? You know what the produce industry is really good at? Storing produce. So, let the experts be the experts. You know what farmers are really good at doing? Storing produce. So, even if you're going to the farmer's market, like let them store it in their root cellar. Buy your beets or your potatoes or your onions as you need them for the week and go back again next week because they're better at it than likely you are. They're better at it than I am. So thanks, that I appreciate your question. Sylvia Yee. Hi, friend. For future consideration, love some basic information on the science of cooking, what and how ingredients are to be combined and what sequence, etc. This could come in handy, not sure even what to ask for, but it seems like a big area. Sure. Uh, you know, I would recommend uh salt acid fat heat by Samran Nostrat. It's an incredible, incredible book uh that really, really very well defines that, uh, those principles. Um another one is Kenzie J. Lopez. Kenzie Alt J. Lopez, I think. He writes for the New York Times. He had one called The Food Lab. Uh, which describes that a lot of this in, in very good detail and then a very expensive book uh, just because it's out of print now um, starting with ingredients by eliza green and it's a huge book uh, it's i don't even know how many recipes but um, oh, yuca crusted flounder interesting turkish baked bluefish wow I got some ideas already so I did straight past the artichokes, lime and olives done. Done. Jeez. Cool. Um, so she just runs through ingredients, like apricots. There you go. That's the first chapter I turn to choosing apricots, choosing dried apricots, making California dried apricots, fresh apricot varieties, apricot season, ripening and storing, choosing, baking. And then she goes through a whole lot of recipes. So these, to me, these types of books are really great uh, in that they they really teach that methodology of cooking, the what, when, where, hot wow how, and why. Um, that really leads to great learning process uh, rather than just like, oh, that recipe was good. I could do that again. So there you go, a couple of good ones for you. All right, from Sheridan C. Hi there. How do you use verjus blanc or rouge? <coughs> Thanks, um, so use it just like wine. So verjuice is the unfermented must or juice of wine grapes, typically wine grapes. So you can have Sauvignon Blanc verjuice, which has all the flavors and acidity of Sauvignon Blanc wine, but zero alcohol. Like it was just never fermented into alcohol. So it's not a non-alcoholic wine, It is was never wine. So verjou is great for people who are abstaining from uh, alcohol for whatever reason, uh, but still want that complexity added into food, whether you're steaming some mussels and want a white wine substitute, verjoux is perfect. Verjoux comes with a little bit more sweetness, though, than wine does, because the sugars in verjoux are converted in, during fermentation into alcohol. So you end up with a sweeter, the verjus has all those sugars still intact. Um, so I would use a little bit less of it, uh, but really use it just as you would wine uh, to deglaze pans, add a little bit to uh, you know your sautéed zucchini or any sautéed vegetable dish, just to add a little bit of punctuation and acidity at the very end. Uh, so there you go. Cheers. Appreciate the question. Thanks, Sheridan. All right, Becca, I if batch cooking quinoa, bag it in quart-sized bags once cool, date and label, put some in the fridge and some in the freezer. Great idea. Yeah, that's perfect. Especially because quinoa is kind of a, a yeah, there, there's a lot of work to getting quinoa right. You have to you know, really wash it and soak it to get all that bitter, uh, I forget what it's called, uh, but that bitter powder off of it. So once you go through the trouble of all that and cooking it, that's a great idea, Becca. Thanks for sharing that with us. Appreciate you. All right. Intrigued now. Well, oh, from Michael. Quinoa cakes. Yeah, there you go. Um, so quinoa cakes, I would, t- I, I typically mash and I, I, I like to kind of overcook my quinoa a little bit so that it falls. It's just beginning to fall apart or sort of de- uncurl. And you can see those little curly cues of, of that fiber that's in there. Um, so I'll take a good bit of that and I'll mash it until it's a paste until it kind of gets some texture to it, a little bit of gumminess. Uh, I will then add an egg yolk uh, or even a whole egg. Um, you can use aguafaba instead of that uh, to kind of re-moisten it and to kind of bring it all together. I would add anything you want to in terms of flavorings, whether it's diced and sauteed peppers, roasted red peppers, onion shallots, garlic, etc. Uh, but I tend to leave them just pretty straightforward. Um, and then I will take chickpea flour or regular AP flour and just... You know, make the cakes, then cool them. They need to cool down so that they will they will form and, and bind a little bit. You can't just do this at room temperature or else you'll just end up with this gummy paste. You need to uh, let them cool down before you make the cakes and then dip them in flour, dip them in chickpea flour and saute them. There you go. Cool. All right, Barton saw you on Alex First America. You were great. Thank you. Good on you. I appreciate you. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, a couple of back in September, I was uh, competing on, well, I guess it didn't premiere until January of this year. But late last year, I, I uh, filmed Alex vs. America, which is like a, one of Food Network's top chef uh, or Iron Chef type competitions. And uh, well, I got outcooked. That's all there is to it. I got outcooked by some really good cooks didn't do as well as I would have liked to have done. I, I could have done better, but but thank you for saying I showed well, because that's what really matters. So thank you, Gary, I appreciate you. All right, how do I prepare crab for cooking? Any suggestions on how to use crab in recipes from Marco? Marco, nice to see you again. I think you've joined us in the past. Um, so crab comes in two forms, raw, live, or whole, cooked, uh, or just the picked meat uh it's very interesting to learn how to pick a crab i think it's important to know how to do that for any good cook to understand just the nature of the ingredients that they're using right so i recommend that but in terms of just the the ease of it it's not the easiest thing to do plus you end up with different kinds of meat say in a dungeness crab you're going to end up with claw meat you're going to end up with leg meat you're going to end up with lump meat you're going to there's a lot of different types of meat in a crab for all the different types of muscles and, and uh, biology they have. So you're going to end up with a lot of meat that's going to suggest maybe some different uses. And you maybe not end up with the right quantities of all those different kinds of meat. So with crab, let the experts be the experts. Let them pick it. Uh, let them cook it. It's always good. It's always consistent. And you get to open up a can of Dungeness crab claw cluster, whatever it is, and boom, it's the same thing, and you're able to use it right away. So cooked crab meat um, does not need to be cooked again. Uh, in some preparations, you should warm it back through, like if you're making a pasta with it, etc. cetera, uh, if you're making crab cakes, whatever it is. But if you're just putting it on top of a salad, no. I like to leave it out, let it get to room temperature just a little bit, so you're not serving ice cold crab on top of something because the flavors bloom, the sweetness comes out if it's a little, not not warm, but just tepid or room temperature, uh, the flavor and the aroma is there a little bit more. So that's one suggestion i make. And uh, others are that uh, any juice or liquid that's in the crab container, do, do not throw that away. That is pure crab flavor. So if you're making a crab pasta, uh, You know, the crab meat goes in at the very, very end, right on top. So it just folds in, and the heat of the pasta will warm that through. But your garlic and your shallots and your thyme that you've been sauteing in butter, you add your pasta in, all that crab juice and maybe a ladle full of pasta cooking water. Simmer that all together until it's this thick, coating, rich, unctuous sauce. Boom! There you go. And then throw your crab in, et cetera. But do not miss the opportunity to use that crab juice or liquid, because that is pure, pure flavor. All right, cool. How would I make my own organic ACV at home? Or do you suggest buying a good one like Bragg's Aaron P? Uh, ACV, apple cider vinegar. Well, uh, making a good one starts with good cider, right? Uh, And good cider comes from good apples. So I have a cider press uh, that we have here. I have seven apple trees on my on my farm here. Uh, You know, there's hundreds of apple varieties, each of them make very distinguished, different products, you know, at the end of the day, are they all apple cider? Yep, yep, they sure are. But some of them are going to be better crab apples and cider apples uh, tend to have lower sweetness and much higher acidity to them, even higher tannins to them. So you're going to end up with a a very different cider vinegar at, at the end of that process. So find an apple that you really, really like, and or a couple apples that you really like. Get some cider made from them. You can just do that yourself. I mean, you can just put it put apples in a blender and then pass them through cheesecloth and just squeeze the crap out of them until they're until you have your cider. It's not the most efficient way, granted, but it works. Or you could wrap them up in cheesecloth, put them in a bowl, and then use a fitting bowl to smash them down so that you can really put some weight on it and that would smash the juice out uh, so you can extract it and then use some of the brags which has that mother in it to kick start the fermentation process is the way that i would do that Uh, and that would you know just put it in a cool dark place about 55 degrees 60 degrees somewhere in that area if you can maintain that if not it's it's okay don't let it get up to 85 don't let it get too cold but somewhere in that room temperature you know winter room temperature zone and it probably takes uh I mean, your vinegar will be vinegary within a couple of weeks but it won't be really done for about two months i would say so just try that out and uh, it's gonna smell first like cider and then like fermentation, like alcohol, and then it's going to smell uh, very vinegary. And this whole time, this entire area will be a heaven for fruit flies. So keep it covered with cheesecloth. You need to let it breathe with air uh, for that fermentation process to happen, uh, for the conversion to vinegar, to acetic acid. Uh, But you want to keep the bugs out of there. So just be aware of those things. Cheers. Go for it. Aaron. I mean, that's a uh, Emily MP M, um, go for it. I think that's an awesome project and you learn a lot from it and you might just learn that, ah, man, this is, this sucks. I'm going to go back to brags. Cool. Now, you know, all right, from Mitch vinegar aficionados might really enjoy the book house of vinegar, the power of sour by Jonathan Sawyer. Interesting. Interesting. Lots of making using on his menus. Cool. Is that Jonathan Sawyer from the Treehouse Restaurant in uh, Cleveland? Wow, well, I'm gonna check that out. Because if it is, that dude a badass. He is so so good. Is there a ba- basic knife skills class coming from Becca? Uh, but knife skills are part of the uh, the Ruby course. Uh, most Ruby courses, the, the pro courses for sure. So if you're not enrolled in one of those, I'm sure that you can. Uh, find some decent ones, uh, whether it would be any of the other online culinary school offerings. I'm not sure if Ruby has just a straightforward uh, knife class, uh, but you can look into that on the, on the Ruby website. So all right, y'all. well it is three o'clock on the dot and I have to go because kindergarten is letting out and I gotta I gotta ooh, I gotta welcome my little beloved home. I appreciate all of you. Please approach your life with gratitude. Approach cooking with gratitude and grace. Come back and see us all again. Thanks for being part of the Ruby family. Bon appétit.